Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Yelena Sofronievich. For many Russians, the fall of communism wasn't felt by the fall of the Berlin Wall, but when the first McDonald's opened in Moscow in 1990. Facing immense pressure from other consumer brands and cultural organisations, the fast food chain has just halted sales across the country as the rapid escalation of the conflict in Ukraine is reflected by another, the rush to sanction Russia. Whether the Winter Paralympics, Warner Brothers or the Venice Biennial, cultural organisations are becoming ever more assertive in their bids to boycott Russia. But as our own culture secretary, Nadine Doris, declares culture the third front in the war in Ukraine, how effective are cultural sanctions compared to economic ones And do businesses really have as much sway as governments? Professor Andrew Bertoli teaches international security at IE University, and he specialises in how sports influences world politics. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Thanks so much for having me on. Andrew, what determines the power of a cultural or sporting boycott then? What makes some boycotts more powerful than others? Well, I think it's first helpful to understand the objectives of sanctions and how they can differ depending on the circumstances. One objective of sanctions could be to weaken the target country so it can no longer engage in the undesirable behavior. So economic sanctions, for example, might weaken a country and make it unable to continue carrying out military engagements. Okay, And and this, this objective is what political scientists call denial. When it comes to cultural sanctions, you know, uh, boycotts from McDonald's or Netflix or other organizations like this, they're not going to stop Russia from engaging militarily in the Ukraine, at least not directly. So uh, when it comes to denial, cultural boycotts, cultural sanctions are not going to be very effective. Another possible objective of of sanctions is what's called punishment. And with punishment, what you're trying to do is inflict so much pain on the target country that it basically stops doing the behavior that you want it to stop so that basically the, the, the sanctions that you're putting on it will be lifted. And research has found in the past that this strategy, even when it comes to very harsh economic sanctions, doesn't really work all that well. When economic sanctions tend to work, it's actually through denial. It's it's denying the target country the ability to continue engaging in the war or in whatever behavior it's it's, it's engaging in, rather than punishment, where, where you're trying to actually compel the country to change its behavior by inflicting pain. So I don't think that cultural sanctions or cultural boycotts are going to be that effective when it comes to the punishment objective either. But where I think cultural boycotts can make a big difference is when it comes to signaling. And uh, with signaling, what you're trying to do is you're trying to to send a message to the target country and also uh, potentially other actors, including the victims who are being oppressed by the target country, that the target country's behavior is unacceptable. And that, you know, the international community is standing in solidarity with the victims. And I, I really think that's where cultural sanctions, cultural boycotts can, can really have an effect. And when you think about it through this lens, it really makes me think that the, the most effective cultural sanctions that are going to apply in this case 
are actually the ones coming from the IOC and from FIFA. Because when a Western company puts sanctions on Russia, I think it's easy for the, the population in Russia to basically like, you know, brush that off and say, oh, well, you know, it's a company from the United States or it's a company from Europe. And they're punishing us because they're on the other side of this conflict. But the IOC and FIFA have had very cozy relationships with Putin's regime over the years. And when you have sanctions coming from them, I think it's a much stronger signal to the public in Russia that the behavior that the regime's engaging in is way out of line. And so I think that those sanctions actually have a good chance to, to, to break through the, the media propaganda that the Russian public's facing right now and actually get some percentage of the population in Russia to reconsider what's really going on in this situation. And FIFA and the Beijing Paralympics both hardened their stance from an Olympic-style sanction on national representation to a total ban on Russian and Belarusian participants quite quickly. How much influence do organisations have over each other's policies? Is that behind the sort of quick development in these sanctions? I don't think they have too much influence over each other's policies because in, in the history of sports sanctions, there have been a lot of cases where a country will get banned by one sports organization, but not by others. And so I think what we're seeing here is, is actually the just a large percentage of the international community is outraged by what Russia has been doing. And all the international sports organizations are feeling pressure to do something about it. And, and so I think that explains why you're, why you're seeing them you know, take these steps that have gone much farther than the, the previous sports sanctions against Russia. FIFA and UEFA both ultimately banned Russian teams from participating after, I think it was Poland, Sweden and the Czech Republic all refused to play the state in the World Cup. It made me think, could this be a case of sort of classic liberal institutionalism, that it's less the cultural organisations and actually more the states that are working within them that lead the way? Yes, it's a great question. And with FIFA and UEFA, I, I can't speak too well to what the actual motivations are of those organizations, wh whether, whether they're doing what they're doing out of principle or whether they feel that there's a lot of pressure on them or there, there would be a lot of pressure on them if they didn't ban Russia. The IOC, though, I think may actually be a different situation because I think what Putin did in this case really angered the IOC in a way that we haven't seen in the past. Uh, and the reason is when the IOC holds the Olympics, they declare what, what's called the Olympic truce. And basically, uh, the way it works is starting a week before the Olympics, going to a week after the Olympics, countries are not supposed to engage in war. And what, what Putin did invading Ukraine four days after the, the Beijing Olympics ended, it's actually the third time he's done that since the 2008. So uh, the first time Putin invaded Georgia during the 2008 Beijing Olympics. The second time he invaded Ukraine in 2014, right after the Sochi Olympics. And now he's done it again after the 2022 Beijing Olympics. So I, I think that people at the IOC maybe feel betrayed because this has happened for the third time now. And what they're doing may actually, in my view at least, really be out of principle rather than international pressure. Let's stick with football then. So the situation around Roman Abramovich seems to be changing every single day. At first, he attempted to shift the care of Chelsea Football Club to its foundation. Then he announced his decision to sell up altogether. Why has football in particular been such a focal point for personal sanctions in Russia? Well, I think that football is, is really like global religion. You know, people care about it so much. They take it so seriously. And it's, it's something that just so many people around the world follow. And when you have a you know a major event happen like this with the invasion of the Ukraine, you know people are gonna you know think about this in terms of 
other areas of their lives that really matter a lot to them. And and just for so many people, football is 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 an arena where they feel like they have a lot at stake. And and so I think that's why it's really become a flashpoint in the pushback uh, and the sanctions that that have come down against Russia. Now, the National Hockey League issued a statement of concern about the well-being of Russian players. Do you think that sporting sanctions hurt individual athletes more than the state itself? I think that they absolutely do hurt individual athletes. And this is something really important to consider because athletes, a lot of them, you know, they they devote so much time, so much energy to trying to make it the professional level, make it to the Olympics or the World Cup. I think their their interests really need to be taken seriously. And and so I think when, when you look at a potential case of sports sanctions, you need to really balance what are going to be the benefits and what are going to be, be the costs, especially the costs to to athletes, some of which might not even support the, the regime that you're trying to sanction. And so when it comes to the NHL, I don't really think there would be much purpose in like banning Russian players from the, from the NHL, because I don't know what type of signal that sends to the Russian population. Maybe a better signal would be to, to block or ban games, NHL games from, from from being accessible in Russia, that might be that might come across as a clearer signal, and it wouldn't, you know, impact the athletes in the same way as a ban. But I, I do think when it comes to cultural sanctions, yeah, the the, the interests of the artists or of the athletes re- really need to be considered, and especially when the when the sanctions aren't going to send a very strong signal, the athletes' well-being should, should probably be a top priority. Now, speaking of individual athletes, the International Judo Federation and World Taekwondo have respectively stripped Putin, who is himself a judoka, of his honorary presidency and his ninth black belt. Given his personal interests and I suppose his effort to emphasise his own physical strength as a leader, do you think this very direct blow to him will hit harder than those on Russian athletes more widely? I don't think it's going to affect his decision making much at all. So I think what he gains from, you know, having those those honors bestowed upon him is they they allow him to convey to his own public that, you know, he's a strong, tough person who, who they should be proud of to be the leader of their country. And the fact that he's been stripped of the titles, I don't think that that's going to that's going to really get much attention whatsoever in the Russian media. So so most of the public probably isn't even going to be aware of it. And for Putin, you know, he, he has much more at stake in, in the ongoing crisis than he does in, in whatever personal value he might, he might have gotten from these titles. I don't think it's going to be a big factor. So if anything, maybe giving, giving him those, those titles in the first place or something that maybe made him more popular in Russia, but it's going to be very hard at this point, I think, to, to take any of that away, at least, at least in the short term. So, Andrew, the European Broadcasting Union was one of the first organisations who were forced to U-turn on their position. On the 24th of February, the EBU asserted that Eurovision was a non-political cultural event. And then the next day, they reversed their decision to let Russia compete. How prepared are large organisations for these kinds of political situations? Do you think they're overly cautious of declaring any position too early? Yes. uh, So I think that a lot of these organizations, they want to try to stay apolitical as much as they possibly can. And in history, there have been there have been times when organizations have managed to do that and times when international pressure has has just mounted to such a high level that they're forced to take a political stance. 
I mean, we just saw the, the Beijing Olympics where there was a lot of international pressure because of the situation in China to either boycott the games or move it to another place. That was a case where the IOC was actually able to withstand the pressure and, and to at least put on the appearance of being apolitical. With this Russia situation, the international outrage has grown to such a high level that, you know, I think maybe some of these organizations have been caught, caught off guard, but to most of them at this point, it, it, the damage that would come from trying to stay neutral in a situation like this would, would far outweigh the costs of, of giving up their, you know, supposed apolitical position. And do you think these organisations see themselves as having different powers and therefore different responsibilities to tackle injustices today than perhaps in the context of apartheid South Africa? Why do you think that might be? I don't know if the if the organisations today have necessarily have different powers. I think what's really changed is just the the ability of, of people around the world to connect and to unite against something. I think what we've seen, um, at least in the United States, which is the case that I know best, is the, the rise of, of a cancel culture that, that exists on both the right and the left, where if people want to cancel you, they can do it really effectively through social media or just the internet in general. It's not like it was you know, 30 years ago where you might be having like a much more grassroots movement, handing out flyers or something. Like People can ratchet up the pressure very, very quickly now. And so I think what is going on that makes this case different than apartheid South Africa is just the, the interconnectedness of so many people around the world and their ability to mobilize very, very quickly around an issue and to put a lot of pressure on organizations and companies to act and speak out against injustices in the world. Now, the European Film Academy has banned all Russian films from the European Film Awards, whilst the Cannes and Glasgow Film Festivals have excluded films with ties to the Russian government. How do inconsistencies between organisations, even within the same industry, affect the impact of cultural sanctions? It's possible that it it could have an impact in that it it would make the signal a little more mixed maybe make it a little bit of a weaker signal that's going to get through, to, especially to the Russian public. It's hard for me to say exactly how much this would this would undermine sort of the, the, the message that's being sent by the cultural sanctions. And in this case, you know, if we're dealing with organizations that are based in Europe, these are organizations that even if they were very much united against Russia, people in Russia might still perceive this as, as being somehow politically biased against them. So I, I would I would say actually in an industry where the the main organizations were much more global, even like a sort of inconsistent signal from organizations that are perceived as maybe a, a little more heterogeneous, you know, a little more representative of the global community, that that weaker signal might actually have a bigger impact than sanctions coming from Europe that are highly consistent. That's really interesting. And you mentioned about media there. Obviously, Google has banned all content from state-backed Russian media on YouTube, whilst Facebook and Instagram have only restricted some of that content. Do you think, therefore, that perhaps Google's strong stance will force the latter to to escalate their responses? Well, I think that these organizations have their own philosophies and their own strategies. And a lot of the time, they're providing different types of services uh, to their users. And in the past, I think there have been a lot of different approaches taken by some of these technology companies, social media companies. We see quite a bit of variation in terms of how they approach different situations. And so I don't think what Google is doing is necessarily going to put a lot of pressure on Meta uh, to do something differently. And I think that the companies, because they're offering different types of services, I'm not sure just like a 
a one-size-fits-all approach is the best uh, strategy for them to, to use. Sticking with media, the BBC has withdrawn many Russian broadcasting rights and has urged Russian networks not to air already purchased shows. I noticed that David Attenborough's series, The Green Planet, for instance, that currently airs on a commercial TV channel called Friday, which is owned by the Russian state energy business Gazprom. Now, that seems to me like quite a clear environmental conflict of interest. And I wonder, in your experience, have you found that boycotts can actually help to draw our attention to existing contradictions in policy and ideas? That's a great question. So I I do think that there are a lot of conflicts of interest at these different organizations in in the field that I know best, international sports. uh, You know, the the IOC and FIFA, they want to be apolitical, but a lot of the times that the governments that they're working with are extremely political and they want to use sports in a very political way. When you have a lot of pressure on, on the organization to ban a certain country or stop working with a certain country, it can actually sort of shine a spotlight on just on the inconsistencies and, and on the contradictions between what the organization says it's doing, in case of like the IOC being apolitical and how uh, regimes, especially autocratic regimes, use the Olympics in very political ways. The journalist Dimi Ryder has suggested that banning Russian films produced with public funds is as moral as trashing your local Russian shop or assaulting a Russian passerby and has the same degree of usefulness for Ukraine. Do you think that he's correct in saying that? I, I actually think there's a couple problems with, with saying that. The first is conflating a boycott with like physical violence or the destruction of property. I just think there's a very big difference between those two things. And the second is drawing a false equivalency between the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. So I strongly disagree with his position. And I, I, I'm actually very much uh, in support of these, uh, these cultural boycotts that have gone against Russia in the last couple of weeks. And finally, Andrew, what is the historical precedent of these kinds of cultural boycotts? What sort of risks could they pose against Russian culture and society and ultimately ordinary people in Russia in the long term? I think there have been a wide variety of cultural boycotts like this in the past. Um, So in my own research, just looking at sports bans, me and my colleagues have found 20 cases that have happened really since about 1950 of countries being banned from international sports. And you look at other examples, especially around cases of war, where there have been boycotts of certain goods or, you know, even if it's not necessarily from the country, if it's associated with the country, there can be a lot of discrimination against those types of goods. I think this is actually something that's really common. And if it's, if these cultural boycotts are only going to last for a few months, maybe even even a few years, I don't think they have much of an impact at all long-term on Russian culture. But if it's the type of thing that would drag out for many, many years, then uh, that could be a different story. Andrew, thank you very much for joining me today. That was really fascinating. Thanks so much for speaking with me. And listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. This is Yelena Sofronievich signing out of the bunker. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Yelena Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. 
and the audio producer is me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.